Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. I am Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. In March of 2023, Silicon Valley Bank suddenly collapsed after its sale of long-term U.S. Treasury bonds at a hefty loss triggered investment panic and a run on the bank. The collapse has had widespread and catastrophic effects on startup companies in the technology sector and has led many to speculate on what we may be heading toward, another banking crisis like we saw in 2008. In this episode, I talk with a friend, Pablo Freund, former banker, managing director of Endeavor Ecuador, and a long-term team member of Criterions around the events surrounding the Silicon Valley bank collapse, which are still at this moment unfolding, how we got here, and how, like any good crisis, can we use this to explore opportunities for change. We'll dive into what it would mean for investors to focus on good equity instead of scale, the power and potential of 0% interest loans widely used in the development landscape to create both impact and shareholder value, and how we can seize the shifting norms underway within finance to fundamentally change the values that underpin the system and reset markers of success. As we like to say at Criterion, we made up the rules of the financial system so we can change them. So I'm here for a conversation with Pablo Freund, who's a colleague at Criterion. He also does a ton of other fascinating stuff out in the world. And we're going to have a bit of a dialogue about Silicon Valley Bank. Hot topic these days. Uh, the day we're recording this is actually the 27th of March, 2023. So all of this is still unfolding as we watch it day to day, look at different banks responding in different ways and the economy trying to catch up with its response. But in the end, we want to get to this question of what is all of these machinations within these banks at this moment have to do with using finance as a tool for social change? What can we learn from this? What, what can we do from this moment? But maybe let's start, Pablo, and, and step back and say, bring us up to speed. How did we actually, in your opinion, and the history, well, you rewritten 85 times, but how did we get here? Thanks, Joy, and thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, as of two weeks ago, uh, the FDIC intervened in uh, Silicon Valley Bank and froze all uh, asset withdrawals on a Friday morning after a run on the bank that started with a very ill-conceived strategy to begin liquidating a component of the bank's assets that was held in a hold-to-maturity portfolio. Now, those hold-to-maturity portfolios are populated by long-term securities. In this case, Silicon Valley Bank had a lot of money over $75, $77 billion invested in 10-year treasuries that were yielding extremely low rates 
Uh, but the risk in hold to maturity portfolio. Treasuries were a good idea at some point, Pablo, right? Remember when treasuries were a good idea? <laughs> yeah, we used to love treasuries as that risk-free asset. So who knew that that would be the, the downfall of uh, one of these signature banks? Uh, in fact, who knew that the liquidation of treasuries would be at the heart of the second largest bank failure in U.S. history? Um, so this is monumental in in scale and quite significant because of the implications it had, uh, potentially devastating, crippling uh, implications for the entire uh, tech and startup sector. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank has spent the last 40 years being the bank at the heart of venture capital in Silicon Valley, but also globally. They, they bank most foreign-born entrepreneurs that raise money from U.S. financial sources. Uh, U.S. is still the leading source of venture capital. And many investors used to actually make it part of the terms of investment to hold your assets with Silicon Valley Bank. But as we were discussing, these uh, hold-to-maturity portfolios face enormous risk if you do not intend to hold to maturity. And what happened with Silicon Valley Bank is that in the middle of last year, in 2022, with all of the post-COVID and Ukraine war uh, pressures on the economy, we saw inflation skyrocket in a you know, 0.5 or 0.25 nominal interest rate that the Fed had at that moment, the real interest rate was deep in the red, negative seven. Just holding your money was losing more value that anyone could really tolerate. Pablo, what, what you and I have talked about before is that really is tied particularly for Silicon Valley Bank to the relationship between venture capital and cash and that sort of what's been going on in the in the VC winter when too many VCs were sitting on too much cash and this sort of dynamics between interest, inflation, the rubber hits the road sometimes just around how cash is playing into all of this. That's right. I mean, the Silicon Valley Bank implosion is just a symptom of the real problem, which is that the zero or negative interest rates and quantitative easing of the last 15 years wrecked the economic system by destroying the value of holding assets in financial institutions, turning everybody that had any assets saved into a more risk-seeking uh, profile just in order not to lose value on the cash you'd been able to save. So in that case, you know, we saw major influxes into venture capital. It was easy for VC firms to raise money because there was nothing better to put your money into. And it was easy for startup founders to raise money from VCs. And as soon as VCs ran out of money and turned back around, look for investors but because this happened as a prolonged period after the 2008 crisis, it was constantly feeding in more money. That was, I would say, 
super powered by the fact that the zero interest rate allowed many institutions to operate at no cost leverage, which only made more assets available for risk-taking behavior. Um, and that fueled the startup boom that we saw over the last 15 years, the chasing unicorn narrative and the raising millions of dollars with a shoddy PowerPoint, because basically there was just too much free money. We can play this out a little bit more because I, I think the, I don't know, if you think about an endowment, right? I, I used to sit on a board of a foundation with a billion dollar endowment. And, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of looking at, you know, that foundation was had a goal of 6%. And, I mean, this was five years ago now, but when I, when I left the investment committee, but they were still thinking they could get 5%. So part of this math for me that has been bewildering me for the last five to 10 years is how, despite an overall slowing of the economy, decline of the economy, whatever you want to describe it as, we still believe we can make the same amount of money, which gets back to this core. I just want to dive home. It's what you just said a moment ago, but it's this relationship between if I'm not going to get 1% from treasury, if I'm not going to beat inflation with treasury, I got to get something else. And that went to venture capital or I think it went to hedge funds. I think it went to derivatives. It went to all kinds of financial instruments that would put positively, that would diversify my portfolio to be able to balance against the risk sitting in in fixed income. But on the flip side, it just drove irrationality. Yeah, you could, you know, in the Greenspan era, chasing 6% was actually not considered a very high risk uh, type of financial aim. Um, we all remember Greenspan's conspicuous consumption. I would say that in the post-Bernanke uh, zero interest rate world that happened after the financial crisis, we saw something similar to the conspicuous consumption at, almost as a irrational investment. Uh, I would cause it, call it that way because I think that what we saw is a product of what happens if you, first of all, out of the 2008 crisis, equities and bonds alike were destroyed. And so, so much of America's savings had been decimated in pension funds and even endowments. This zero interest world, this uh, free money world, allowed so many financial actors to kind of re-uptake re their investment appetite. And that's, we saw a very prolonged bull market happen after that crisis. And, and that, in a way, restored the, you know, Main Street's appetite for investing in equities. Uh, it, it restored the average American's faith in their 401k or pension plan and made them feel like there was something there. So it was very affirming for for the investment landscape. If, if you look at what happens outside of those individual investors, these institutional investors, you see a very different face of what happens when you have a free money regime, which is uh, out of control uh, uh, type of uh, irrational investments that are chasing outsized returns. And for those investment funds, and, and particularly the endowment you just mentioned, 
that hasn't changed their return target from 6% at 0% interest nominally. 6% is a much riskier pursuit. Yeah, and I, and I think there's there's something underneath this that just, just sort of continuing to dive into this relationship between at, at some fundamental level, debt and equity, right? We're sitting on what is the interest rate in loans and how does that play out in the equity market? And I think within Silicon Valley Bank, those two were so tightly juxtaposed, right? So here you have um, VCs driving their um, cash accounts to sit at Silicon Valley while they're driving growth at the same time, this sort of blitz scaling, right? How fast can we grow at what level? Because we're trying to make up for the losses. It's it's just such a remarkable juxtaposition. Uh, one is play that out a little bit, but I also think the other piece that I always find remarkable is how is it that a whole bunch of folks can sit in the middle of this and nobody's calling the question, right? Like I believe for a while that we should call the question on venture capital. Like it hasn't performed even as to its own benchmarks for a very long time, right? It's sitting on buckets of capital. It keeps investing in the same idea over and over and over again without very much innovation. And yet it's supposed to be the site of innovation. There's, there's a sort of like, I don't know, from a power dynamic perspective, there's just something about the norms around venture capital that allow us to, maybe we want to believe, but allow a whole bunch of people to believe in risks that are untenable. Yeah, well, I think that there's another side to, to this, and I think that you're driving home a very interesting point, which is it is untenable in, in interest rate environments that are increasing, but with so much quantitative easing and literally a doubling of the monetary base in the United States, it almost felt like you could not run out of money for this. In a constrained environment where there was... Wait, can you just... That is such an important public... Can you just say that piece again? It's such an important point. Right. So zero interest rates. So the free money regime and then the doubling of the monetary base actually had the entire economy flushed in this liquidity that that created this false sense of endless funding. And I think that that is true for startup founders that, you know, whether they had something in, innovative or not, they, they were savvy enough to capitalize on a moment in time where there was a lot of need to allocate capital because it was not about to sit in a bank account. And then the flip side of that was investment funds uh, were also uh, able to get so many investors to, to put money into VCs because of the the kind of lack of alternatives for returns, right? So the, that just drives this exponential curve. Um, and it's a different form of a similar thing that we saw in 2008, right? 2008 is the, the crumbling of this house of cards of del- derivatives built on derivatives built on derivatives. But Right now, what we're seeing is the unwinding of liquidity built on liquidity built on liquidity because banks have a a relatively low reserve requirement. And when you invest, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, when VCs invest in startups that then deposit that money into 
the into this bank, the bank also has to allocate those. And as long as money was cheap, Silicon Valley Bank didn't necessarily need to make a lot of money on their loans. In fact, they were one of the preferred lenders in America because their loans were so cheap. And so companies would raise money and they didn't necessarily have to use the assets that they raised because the bank that they had deposits in was willing to lend money at an absurdly low rate as well. Right. So they had the they had the venture capital, which sat on their balance sheet as equity, but then they had working capital that they could flow through to make sure that they weren't actually tapping their equity capital in the day-to-day flow of things. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and that's when that's when you see, uh, you know, the choke that happened in 2022, the so-called VC winter. Companies stopped being able to raise money so easily. Interest rates started increasing. The more savvy treasuries started moving their money to other financial institutions that were paying better yields on deposits. Silicon Valley Bank couldn't keep up with those deposit offerings that other financial players that didn't have their money locked into these very long-term 10-year treasuries yielding less than 0.7. They couldn't really pay more on yields. So more and more treasuries started moving their money away. Companies that couldn't couldn't raise more money started spending down their money. And all of a sudden, Silicon Valley Bank found themselves in a position that they had to sell a part of their whole to maturity portfolio, incurring $1.8 billion in losses from selling treasuries, you know, really save things. But if you've locked in low yields, for 10 years, uh, and you don't hold them to maturity, it, it's going to backfire. All right. So a spiraling death circle here of just happy news across the board. So so maybe one of the, the, the sort of promise at the beginning of this is, what does all this have to do with using finance to create social change? So maybe just a couple points to ask you to dig into a little bit on this. One is, while I can criticize venture capital, it's not lost on me that it also enabled a bunch of impact-driven companies to get capital. And so interesting question to say, would we have actually had the sort of market built in impact investing without this economic climate in the last 10 years? That's maybe one question. And then the second question is, what are the possibilities created? There's a, this is a zero interest, 0% interest loans Interesting. So maybe unpacking a few different things that say, what what can we do here? Because for me, once again, in 2008, the emperor has no clothes. And we are really clear that the reality is 2008 was not a economic crisis. It was was a financial crisis. And so one more time, it showed the machinations inside of finance drive a lot of this, which means you can fix it. You could do different machinations within finance that have different outputs. One more time, this was, you know, this is not an economic reality. We can't say that this was caused by the pandemic and some shift in the global economy. This was financial machinations. And for me, that's always a reminder that says, we made this shit up. We can do something different. If this didn't work, it's not like this is the fixed rules of the economy that all economies run on 2% interest. Apparently, they don't. At some point, ironically, this kind of crisis can also lead to new kinds of imagination. Yeah, I, I think 
that's the key component that last thing you said that the imagination of of what else is possible and and how do we build from crisis and um, and take these lessons and really internalize them i think one of the key components about the last 15 years has been this free money uh, world and what's really happened with that is that you know the accumulation of safe assets uh, as soon as you revert out of the zero interest erodes all the equity that all the financial players have and so this the approach that we had to solve the problem in 2008 and it created an illusion of safe assets that in the end has left us to face some of the same problems, which is what happens when finance steps away so much from the real economy that there is a deep erosion of equity, a deep erosion of kind of the real asset value. I think that the, within, let me just let me yeah. just yeah, just double check clicking on that because I think it's it's a really important thing to remember. I mean, part of the challenge in getting airtime in investing and finance talking about social good or gender analysis is because they basically have the arrogance to say, we've got this sorted. We have a better view into the economy. You're not doing analysis that's material to our investments. Part of that is because they're getting so far away from the real economy that they're no longer watching the real economy, right? They're watching manipulated interest rates tied to a manipulated monetary base built on top of disproportionately risky equity. That's not clear analysis. So it's a call to action to say, why don't we get to better analysis actually grounded in the real economy? I couldn't agree more. I mean, the biggest symptom of that is the Fed's enormous miss on inflation by calling it transitory. That shows a deep misunderstanding of real economy factors, right? The uh, transitory inflation is kind of financial inflation. It's inflation that came through and will go through and prices will correct. But if the real, if real assets are, are actually pricing in increases, commodities, etc., then it's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, I also think that there's something worth keeping in mind in, in your first point, which is I do think that the largesse and the availability of funds that low interest rates made available from VCs had a positive effect in enabling the emergence of a bigger impact investing field than maybe would have been possible in a tighter interest rate environment, right? So we, we had a, that positive externality, right? I, I would say if we could also have captured more of those assets to go into building out the real economy and not evaporating into, you know, funding these PowerPoint decks and not much more, uh, I think we would have seen less erosion of assets. But I mean, we had plenty of power, quote unquote PowerPoint decks and impact investing as well of just sort of, I can end poverty through this one app and <laughs> I will transform the Indian economy single-handedly. No, I'm not actually talking to the government of India because I've got this handled all through. I mean, there were a bunch of things. So I, I think 
we weren't immune to that. But and maybe one of the lessons there is we stepped into it and and kept with this sort of venture capital versus just really solid private equity. I wish we would look more carefully at what actually makes good equity because we need to be buying and selling real assets. We need to be investing in good equity and not just this obsession with scale. Yeah, I mean, the obsession with scale is is part of it. And this goes back to the, the second question you asked, which was zero. We, we've witnessed 15 years of zero interest, which makes us understand that things can be built in zero interest environment. In, in fact, incredible companies have been built over the last 15 years. We can't downplay the fact that this VC boom and startup boom hasn't actually just changed the face of the earth. It has. It's It's been one of the most rapidly advancing technological moments. I don't know if that's coincidental with just the pace of technology, but the fact is we've invested more assets on, in that than anything else in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think that the important thing to keep in mind is we can still provide 0% debt funding to build equity as the creation of value. And I think that that's a very important, with zero interest loans, which we've seen all over the development landscape, uh, we're just asking for recovery of principal in the face of the low interest environment that was eroding capital, a lot of that capital enabled the building of a lot of impactful solutions around the world that changed a lot of lives and and also created a lot of shareholder value. So low, low interest loans, zero interest loans can still be used to build up that asset base. And in a And if we focus it, on healthy business models in a kind of, uh, I would say, a more moderate risk-taking approach that doesn't equate, you know, profit in 25 years with with an investment today. But if we, we just build out businesses in the good old-fashioned way, seeking break-even, we might be able to put capital out into the world for social impact at very, very low interest and still able be able to create a lot of impact and a lot of shareholder value because those ventures are creating value in the economy. And that's when we switch from creating valuation value versus real economy value. 100%. And I think that's such a, I mean, so much of the story of, no, we can't do that, right? And I, I sort of, early days of looking at community loans, you know, sort of in, in sort of early social investing days and community investing. And people would say, well, these are so far below market. They're 2%. We would kill for 2% right now, really. 2% sounds brilliant, but at the time it was not sexy. And so we needed to build this sexy high growth industry to really capture the imagination I actually think it'd be a really cool project to say, what can we do now that we have proven that we can do 0% interest loans? And in fact, to your core point, if we had invested this 0% interest moment in real assets, in building a real economy, 
we might have more equity right now <laughs> to actually play with versus now being depleted and running all that down. So, so this kind of irony of the relationship between a lower interest market with more grounded, stable growth of real equity is worth figuring out how to do that. And we've got more toys available. Remember a friend of mine saying that she went to a bank and asked for a million dollars at 0% interest. And they're like, sure, zero beats negative. We'll do it. Right. So all of a sudden we've got like a new narrative that says these are possible. So sure. I wouldn't say that we're going to build our whole world based on 0% interest loans, but it's a significant part of the economy right now. And so framing it in terms of how it can help using finance to create social change seems like a darn good idea. Yeah, I think, you know, and we all, and that means that the economy at large uh, needs to reset our markers of success. Because I've seen a lot of conversations that people are saying, we don't need economy, we don't need more unicorns in the economy, we need more donkeys, just draft animals, we need the animals that are gonna really be able to uh, withstand the weather and still, you know, uh, make the farm thrive. And I think that that's squirrels yeah. that are storing up their acorns, not just exactly. We need a, a whole <laughs> set of real animals rather than these imaginary creatures. Real animals is where we should be going, and real animals, hopefully grounded also in real people who have real conversations about real economies without as much of the norms that live within finance that let us build these house of cards over and over and over again because we want to believe in them so badly. And so we do. Yeah, and I, the one thing that I would say is that in 2008, the financial crisis that was caused was deleveraging, right? I would say that this new crisis that we're facing is the deflation of overhyped valuations. But both share a common trait, which is that there is so much built on top of each other to the point that we've abstracted what it all stands for at the beginning. Uh, we no longer have a connection between the the real value that is created for humans for nature and that ultimately i think we need to start to think a bit uh, again about how these situations teach us about how we can use finance in a more grounded way and hopefully help us change some of these norms um, i do think that a big norm that is shifting right now is the objective of venture capital firms. And I do think that that is going to have a trickle through effect uh, for other types of asset managers and what they're seeking from their underlying investments. As moments of crisis are moments of change and taking this moment to as in many places as possible, use our power to call the question and say, let's look at it again. Is this a house of cards or is this built on real numbers? And just because there's some white guy standing up in front of this explaining to us why we should believe in this with a beautiful PowerPoint deck, that doesn't make it the real economy. And how are we listening to different voices? How are we changing what voices are in the norm? What, what voices are in the room? How are we shifting norms? 
And so the spin doctors are not winning quite as much. As always, Pablo, could talk to you for a very long time and so glad to have this conversation with you. Let's stop chasing these fantastical creatures. Let's build from the ground up. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joy. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.